We're rolling, baby. Congratulations. You're the first guest oh. on the B podcast. What an honor. Jeremy Clifton. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. My first yeah. ever podcast. Mm, mine yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> Not something you want to hear from your <laughs> podcast host. You new podcast host, yeah. <laughs> Amateur hour with Jeremy and Soren. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had many a conversation though in my time here on Earth, so uh-huh. I'm, hoping, I'm hoping this feels relatively similar to that. Yes. Yeah. I. I mean, I, I have. I, I lie in saying it's my first. I've played around with it for a bit. The first time with proper equipment. Mm. Um, one thing I have noticed is how adding a layer of intentionality or infusing an interaction with this added intentionality changes something qualitatively about the interaction. And that's the ma- one of the main things that draws me to exploring the space of podcasting is to have more intention intentionality in my relationships and points of contact with other people. So thanks yeah, for helping beautiful. me along that, along that journey. Awesome, yeah. Thanks for... <laughs> Provoking me into having intentional conversations. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. Actually, I think that that's a great uh, motivator for people putting effort into conversations and and taking a little bit of extra cognitive resources to think through what they're saying, uh, considering how this will play back in the future. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 definitely a skill. It's taken me a while to kind of maintain focused on the 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 thread of the conversation and and remember themes rather than imagine putting myself in the audience perspective which invariably leads to anxiety which gets in the way of having a meaningful chat so Mm, that's um, a skill mm, yeah yeah it's it's a concentration practice yeah yeah i've done a, a bit of that in the in the writer's seat which is a, a bit more removed because you do have time to really deliberate on exactly how things are expressed. So the, the free form spoken version is, is interesting. The writer's seat? Yeah, well, like writing a blog. I've, I've published a few little blog, blog articles. Ah, I didn't know that. But it's called the writer's seat. No, um, oh. it's called Mind Musings or Musings on Mind. I can't ah. actually remember which one it is. <laughs> cool. But yeah, it's a... It's a little uh, a practice of developing my writing skills and uh, I guess a tool for deliberating about my PhD, which is on mind wandering. Mm-hmm. Um, but more broadly, my, my focus in my research is on consciousness. And so the, the theme of the blog is my own mental musings as a way of deliberating on different facets of consciousness that I find interesting and that I'm exploring in my daily life. Um, it's almost like, like I view it as analogous to a journal, but one that requires a little bit of extra editing because there's going to be publication involved uh, and people reading it. And, um, I find that added social impetus really like, uh, engaging because Mm -hmm. it, yeah, it inspires similar to this. It like inspires a bit more, uh, cognitive effort into exactly what I'm saying and making it clear instead of like when I when I journal I often uh scribble down really 
free flowing thoughts that um, are very cathartic, but are far less insightful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's it's it slows us down, doesn't it? When when we're drawing on. I guess it's it's kind of like a compassion muscle in a way. We're kind of widening our sphere of consciousness to include others. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. Right? I think of that as kind of like compassion. Mindfulness might be, I think, stream of consciousness, speaking or writing is probably training mindfulness, probably training just awareness and expanding awareness. But it's more self-centered, egocentric. Whereas when we include other beings in that and how they might be responding and relating to the content, then mm, becomes, yeah. you know, cultivation of, you know, compa- like I think of the two wings of awareness, mindfulness and heartfulness or compassion. Yeah, cool. And I, I consciously cultivate both of those together because like mindfulness alone is, you know, a, a cat is yeah. mindful before it pounces on its prey. A sniper is mindful before they take their shot. Mm. Uh, there's no compassion there i i see that i see the compassion piece often missing in descriptions of mindfulness that we have access to in the west yeah um, so I'm, I'm really interested in cultivating compassion so i guess this is kind of like a compassion practice by extension yeah as wow. well in the same way that you're writing it that's beautiful i actually really love that that little addition of, of heartfulness to mindfulness because mm. Uh, my own journey with mindfulness has been really tainted by cognition a lot because mindfulness is, is very implicitly a cognitive activity of um, like you, like existing in the mind. And, and it was something that was missing, at least in my own uh, exploration of mindfulness for a long time was, was the feeling of, of the heart and how you can open and close your heart. And uh, that kind of de- determines what your mind does your heart is is the the preceding factor of of your mind and if you open your heart then thoughts are allowed to move freely and if you close your heart then thoughts become very fearful and protective uh, of the heart and so Mm. yeah it's very interesting that you can get the same kind of feeling from engaging socially instead of just in a in a individual practice through public uh, publicizing your work <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's brilliant yeah so maybe talking about your phd would be a good place to start so you said you're studying mind wandering do you want to talk a bit more about that or do you yeah, want to start to. with your agenda you mentioned before that <laughs> <laughs> you had a, a question or something hmm. okay you want to start yeah 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 well I think in terms of flow, my agenda might be more relevant to what we were just talking about. So, so let's um, begin with that. I'll be the interviewer first. <laughs> um, so my agenda is driven by, a, a, I checked your podcast out, the, the recordings that you had done mm, in your van. Mm. Um, you sent me a, your mantra <laughs> singing, which was really beautiful. And uh, like I just kind of like found myself um, doing some daily activities while it was, it was running through my mind, <laughs> my mind and kept me really yeah. present throughout it. Great. it kind of helped me address the, um, the constant feeling of suffering that goes along any daily activity. Um, and so 
yeah, that was really nice. And then suddenly I was listening to you discuss uh, Zen and I guess the philosophy of like contemplative philosophy um, in your first few episodes. Ah, um, practice, like yes, purpose being an emergent property of practice and then discipline yep. versus control. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't even know that they were all separate episodes. They really well flowed into each other. Mm. Um, but there was one, there was one line that you dropped throughout it that I found really interesting. And, and it's something that I have toyed with a lot in my life. It, the line was, uh, something along the lines of, uh, it was to do with efforts. You might be able to recall it better than me, um, that you shouldn't be, you should be effortful as little as possible. Use as yeah, little effort as you can. Or, or Look for the balance between effort and ease. Mm. I emphasize the importance of effortlessness or not trying too hard, mainly in response to my observation of the cultures, um, well, the, the kind of busyness cult in the culture and the mm. way that busyness is worn as a badge of honor and how striving and trying is so heavily reinforced. Um, yeah. Mm often at the expense of leisure and ease and rest and pleasure. I don't think, I don't, uh, you know, I've never been taught how to rest. And I, I see stimulation as an epidemic in our society. Yeah. Um, the, the, the way that I rest is active and the, the way that I believe rest is most effective is active. Sitting watching Netflix is not mm. rest. That's, that's exposing ourselves to stimulation in the sedentary state that's putting our bodies and minds in a state of distress yeah i think that i think that rest is an active process um, mm. so that kind of relates to the concept of balancing effort and ease and finding that kind of the sweet spot on the throttle yeah uh, not trying too hard but also also not being passive either like i think um, I, I don't think effortlessness is a is passivity or resignation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Wow. There's a there's a lot to unpack there, especially because <laughs> I'm very brainwashed by the effort busyness culture. Um, mm. Coming from, like my family has really like worn busyness as a badge of honor, and so mm. um, yeah, learning how to rest has been a journey for me as well and I find it very interesting what you say about active rest because I did have this intuition for a long time that rest was something that was meant to be active and, and a lot of people were trying to tell me that I needed to rest by uh, by unwinding and becoming passive mm. and, um, it just never felt restful to me uh, doing that it felt um, if anything it was it was almost like for the whole time I was doing it I was having to um, overcome the, the feelings of wasting time <laughs> but that's another another issue but no, so i think that's very very linked because yeah. I, what i hear there is is boredom or restlessness which again mm. that's a that's a, that's indicative of psychological distress yeah and when we're or stress so when we're stressed our body's releasing cortisol and adrenaline which is not helpful for muscle or neural re recovery, or neural yep. consolidation or muscle recovery. Yeah. So that, that's, yeah, it's, it's 
that's your body telling you that something else is needed there that you're not needing passivity you're not needing inactivity yeah might be stimulation or movement or mm. yeah that's interesting um yeah the i guess i i would like to back step quickly to the the thing about effort because uh i have always struggled with uh feeling like effort is is kind of like the the main force in life that we ever need to cultivate everything should be effortful and and um uh i guess when i was initially listening to that my uh reaction was one of my inner child exasperatingly going oh but everything is so effortful and so if i let go of effort i feel like i would be having to to give up everything that I that mm. I do, um, you know, my PhD is something that never feels like I, I get into that much ease with it, and and part that, like that might be because there's a lot of distress around it. But it definitely mm. feels like I have to effortfully hold myself there. And um, when I'm meditating too, it feels like I am. You know, it, it definitely feels like there's a subtle undertone of purpose to what I'm doing, and it. I guess that makes it feel like it's effortful because when I sit down, if I am straying from that purpose, I always bring myself back. And yeah, so how do we how do we still engage in the things that are good for us, the things that we that we value um, when they don't feel like there's any ease to them when they do feel like constant effort how would you um how would you find that balance i wonder if the degree of exertion we're conscious of is related to where we are along the spectrum towards enlightenment I would imagine that the enlightened or, or liberated person feels joy or fluidity and effortlessness in everything that they do. And yet to get there, we're probably going to need to fail a lot and strive and burn out and go through periods of inactivity and sedent- have sedentary phases. Yeah. Um, no, okay, that makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with effort. I think it's part of the journey and yep. part of the part of the, the the sort of journey towards towards balance, towards like finding the middle way. Yeah, I think that with mindfulness and compassion, we we gradually move closer and closer towards that the the kind of the the middle way of effortlessness. I think that purpose is very relevant when we think about goals, you know, the acronym SMART? Yep. Um, what, what's often, what, what's often not emphasized is the R that relevant in SMART goals. I, I see a lot of empty goals or goals that are set in the absence of some deeper purpose or meaning or linked to some underlying value system. Yeah. And, those goals tend not to be very sustainable from where I observe them. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's that relevance that makes a goal sustainable, that if we know why we're doing something, then we're, perhaps effort isn't the right word at that point. We're, we're working, we're, we're increasing our commitment to the work. And yet there's a, there's a, there's a kind of surrendered quality to the way that we engage with whatever it is that we're doing. So, so in, in the sense doesn't that doesn't really make sense uh, when when we're in a space when where we're very aligned. It's yeah. it's just it, it's the way that I'd imagine it, and the, the times that I I've been closest to this, it's felt like I haven't had a choice in the matter. Yeah, that I'm doing it. And yeah, I I would say from some perspective, from one perspective, I was applying effort, and yet it's not like I had a choice. It was like this, I just, I just need to do this. Everything is lining up here. And this is so, so clearly the next best step yep. that I'm going to do this regardless of the cost. Mm. And there's a real joy in that. There's a, oh, oh yes. Even if it's physically uncomfortable, or painful or cold, <laughs> yeah because it's fulfilling yeah <laughs> it's like i need to do this this is right yeah this is right or scary you know yeah yep. well there's a driving factor behind overcoming those negativities yeah, but it is interesting you bring yeah. that up the smart framework because um yeah i definitely i definitely resonate with the the relevant um letter in that acronym but uh I also resonate with the attainability one, um, thinking about it because my PhD is, it's very relevant. It's, it's like exactly aligned with what I want to do with my life. Um, and I know that. And so there's, there is this often bizarre, uh, like dissonance in me of, of why do I find this so hard when it's what I want to do? And I know that it's not something I want to give up on. So, so how come I have to force myself to do it? And uh, I think for me, it's because I've set goals that are unattainable. Um, mm. My goals are to be able to immediately um, generate a question that's really useful for mind wandering, mm. um, to understand a whole literature within a year and all of the, the, the nuances between different uh, like factors of mind wandering and, um, and different methodologies to be able to answer really big questions in one experiment. Yeah. All of these things are, are unattainable goals. Yeah. And so because I, I have this, this conception in my head about what I should be doing, I've, I've set this implicit goal with myself that I'd, I'd walk into my PhD and, and just be able to, um, you know, rapidly, like I thought that the coming up the question would be the easy part. And then the hard part would be like writing it or something. Like, uh, I guess I had this goal that all of that would be, that I'd be able to ask really good questions about mind wandering straight away. And so because that isn't happening, um, it's generated this feeling of effort where it's draining, not being able to, to, to make any progress towards my goals. It feels like I'm failing constantly. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I can relate. I've, I've had a, I, I mentioned before the just started, um, practicing Ashtanga yoga at a, at a, under a new teacher. Yeah. Um, and, 
the teacher has been very encouraging and and also very firm at the same time she she said some things like you're you're born a yogi you you're born a yogi <laughs> like, um, and you'll be True. able to do that like you'll be able to do everything that she's done is but this the the girl that was next to me in a short video that I, I i'd taken a video of myself to remember some of the the, the postures yeah um, and she was incredibly impressive for, yeah <laughs> for yeah the teacher said that i will be able to do it that i have the ability to do all of that um so there were two things that happened to me in in that moment one was i felt very encouraged and at the same time i felt kind of defeated because it's, it's yeah. so hard for me to imagine how I could the years get from of here work to there. that you would yeah. have to put in. Hey, it's, yeah. a, it's an exhausting thought. And at, at the end of my practice this morning, she invited me. She said, okay, this is your space now. Do what you want. Stretch, or do handstands. I saw you doing handstands before in the warm up. You can do handstands. You can just sit and meditate, whatever you want. That's your space now. Mm. And I was sort of stretching, mucking around for a bit. And then I, then I got really caught up in looking around the room at what everyone else was doing. And the more I did that, the more kind of deflated, the more tired, the more I sort of got, got up in my head and started wondering how I could get there. Mm. And, you know, our short term memory capacity is very limited. Like, you know, we can only hold five plus or minus two items in short-term memory at a time so in terms of being able to formulate a plan two years in advance <laughs> yeah. in, without some added without putting something on paper or without some visual aid we we can't do that and so there's just yeah. very limited value in rumination in yeah. sitting and thinking our mind can only take us so far um, the mind is a, a terrible master, much better servant. Yep. And that's where that saying comes from. In, in this moment, I, looking around the room, seeing all these incredibly advanced yogis and just feeling really deflated because it seemed like that was so far off. Um, interestingly, the teacher saw this. Oh, wow. And walked, came, came next to me and, and I'd finished the practice. I wasn't expecting anything else from her at this she, she walked up next to me, put her hand gently on my shoulder, just said, be still. <laughs> Such a sage. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and that was all I needed to invite me back into lotus meditation, back into my breath. Yeah, wow. And I sat for 10 minutes and then finished and then left the room. <laughs> yeah, cool. The power of letting go Yeah. of those... I guess those implicit goals that you've just picked up mm. that you have um, generated through comparison and comparing. Yeah. And I wonder where those shoulds come from. I wonder where your shoulds come from when you tell yourself that you should get some deadline done by a certain date or you need to, you know, within a year or whatever, you know. Mm. Have you ever heard the expression shooting on ourselves <laughs> <laughs> sounds messy <laughs> Very. <laughs> i wouldn't recommend it and yet i often find myself doing it although i i very rarely use the word should yeah almost entirely um 
uh, excavated the word should from my lexicon, mm. but it still manifests. I mean, there's still an embodied sense of should. And in that moment, I think what I was feeling was, was a should. Yeah. Yeah. We have very big dreams for ourselves that I guess are not very tethered to reality in a lot of ways. And so <laughs> I guess that's, yeah, it's an interesting question looking for where the shoulds come from. And like, obviously a lot of it is, a lot of it can be externally um, provided. But for myself, I find that I guess the the idea that I only have one life and that's only a certain length of time makes me feel like I need to rush. It's like the, the death anxiety um, not, not the actual fear of dying, but the fear of dying without having done everything that I want mm. is, uh, is maybe what motivates my shoulds. Um, I don't have to, I don't have four years to spend toying with the, the basics of a PhD. I want to already be researching consciousness so that in 40 years time I've written 10 books or, you know, um, and so yeah, I've, I've definitely collected a, a list of desires for my life already and, and they generate, I guess, um, preconceptions about where, where I should, like, like my progress, where I should be up to already. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just used it in a sentence where I should be up to already. <laughs> I didn't even notice that I'd oh, slipped yeah. that in. Yeah. yeah, when I first when I first had that pointed out to me, I uh, became very conscious of how often I was using the word "should." Mm. Uh, yeah, circling back to time, this is, it reminds me of a conversation I had last night with a Hare Krishna devotee. I was chanting mantra at Gabinda's ashram. Yep, cool. Um, and he was a guy, his name's Alex, he's, he's usually there, he's a regular. He lives at the men's ashram. He wow. was the guy who mentioned what I said to you earlier, that for him, practice is at the center of his life, his spiritual practice, which is doing japa, or saying, chanting the Hare Krishna mantra, um, in the early hours of the morning, apparently the, the first two hours before sunlight are the most effective time to be doing a spiritual practice. Wow. For whatever reason. That's um, commitment. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he, he shared this idea that I've, I've felt and, and it's resonated with me, but I haven't heard anyone put it so directly before. So the idea that practice is at the center of our life and that everything we do in life supports the practice rather than the way it's often framed for us in the West that if we meditate, that it's going to improve our life. If we do yoga, it's going to improve our life. So we look for the benefits of a practice for our life rather than organizing our life around benefiting our practice. Yeah. And why would you do that if our life is short. It seems meaningless, right? Like, why would you just do spiritual practice all the time? And his response to that 
I didn't ask that. He just he just sort of this came up organically. He was just talking. So he believes that his soul is eternal. And so why would you waste your time accumulating anything or, or putting any or putting energy into anything that's not permanent? Yep. Body, family, money, our work, a career. Everything is going to go away. Every, everything is going to either die or go back to nature or decompose. Nothing's permanent except for the soul in that framework of that philosophy that the soul will get born again into a new incarnation. Yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what to make of that. <laughs> and yet, as a psychologist, I'm trained to think about not whether, not, you know, as, as a practitioner, I'm trained to think about or respond to beliefs at the functional level. As a scientist, mm. I train to search for the truth or test out, you know, I, I was oriented towards truth. As a practitioner, I'm oriented towards functionality. From a functional perspective, that's a really useful belief. It's, I recognize the value in believing that there is a soul in me and that it's eternal. Yeah. That seems really useful. And the paradox is that if I surrender to that perspective and if, if I open to that belief that I commit myself more to my practice, my practices, and my life gets better. But yes. not because I'm trying to improve my life. Yep. And that's, it's, it's a tragedy in a way. It's a paradox. It's kind of liberating as well. Yeah. But do you think that it's possible to maybe uh, play a little game for the agnostics out there, myself included, <laughs> who, um, being a scientist, uh, I do try and savor my mental resources for the more answerable questions. And I save the, um, the no doubt, more interesting, but um, ineffable questions for late night campfire, campfire <laughs> discussions, <laughs> which will go on for hours. Um, do you think that we can, uh, can try and arrive at the same conclusion with a different path that doesn't require a paradox? Um, do we need to uh, like appeal to the infinite infinity of our soul in order to justify um, something which is inherently satisfying on earth? I, th I think that um, even given our limited time on earth and in, in the absence of a soul, the, the most satisfying and fulfilling thing that you can do is be in relationship with yourself because um, from a fully skeptical point of view, we can't actually be sure that anything but ourselves, ourself exists. Mm. Uh, and so why not spend time observing the only thing that we can be sure of uh, mm. so that so that then we can be better at acknowledging the, uh, I guess, being free from the, uh, the poisons of, of taking life too seriously and, and identifying too much with things that, that are very transient 
in the external world. Um, Whatever works. I yeah. mean, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, is, that, is, that a, is that a complete picture? Is that like, I'm just curious. I wonder if we need the faith component. Faith is a very loaded word. And I know that many people react to faith. I, I don't know if it necessarily needs to be faith. I think a recognition that there is much we don't understand mm. is important. Yeah. And also curiosity or an interest or, or, a lear- or an orientation towards a learning is very important as well. Important for what? I don't know. because then then we enter into that trap again if we start looking for outcomes then we're reinforcing you know the the cycle of craving and aversion the buddhists link to our suffering Mm. and you know that it's it's just such a an an intuitively valid concept that anytime we want this moment to be different anytime that we want anything there's an implicit assumption that where we are right now is unsatisfactory in some way so wanting reinforces unsatisfactoriness yeah um so how do we not become happy but rather how do we liberate ourselves from or get free from that cycle of suffering it's by rather than trying to have what we want trying to want what we have by coming into the present moment through whatever means we can and staying here. Yeah. That's how we get free from suffering. And it's not like, and if you do that, then your life is going to be better. If you do that, if you, if you go there, then you fall back into the trap again. You're back at square one. You do it because there's nothing else to do because there's nothing else that's interesting and then everything else just takes care of itself so there's a faith in involved in that i think for, for me i starting to open to sadhana or spiritual practice being what i do that's all i do podcasting psychotherapy everything else is just happening but that's what i do I'm yep. just, I'm always just doing my practice and everything else is going to take care of itself. Mm. And when I do that, I, I do notice that I, I, I become more effective. Yep. The more I align with that, the more effective I am. I, I see that. And then if I start orienting towards the efficacy, stuff starts getting harder again. I start struggling and striving. I start rushing and tripping over things and kicking things with my toes and banging my head on stuff (laughs) yeah making mistakes and (laughs) so not sleeping and it's comedic this game of life how it's it's essentially (laughs) the game of uh knowing what you don't know um and and working through the paradoxes of um of uh i guess finding ease in effort and (laughs) Mm. And, um, I don't think there's a way to get. A, I don't think we can get away from paradoxes. No, they're, they're, they're and, inherent and, by yeah. our, and I quant- guess. Quantum mechanics, quantum physics is starting to show us this. At a, at a, at a, we we're starting to observe the the inconsistency and the, in, the 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 incongruence between things, even in the material level. Yeah. That's that's. Um, 
and undermining and undoing a lot of our kind of um, you know previously you know religious rubrics about how to how to be in the world yeah i feel like a lot of spiritual practice can be simplified as noticing when you feel yourself pushing too far in any direction and letting go mm. um because uh the reality is that that we don't actually have any control and um the best way to be is just to be and <laughs> be podcast baby yeah the be podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely named um mm, it is it's it's a funny thing how um we get so i guess caught in uh categorizing and identifying things that we we go off on little narratives and tangents in our minds to be like oh in this case like i'm putting effort towards this now and and blah blah and we just forget like the the, the simplest truth which is just to let go mm. um you can you can do everything that you do in life from a position of having let go that it doesn't need to be stress plus work you can just mm. be work uh you'll mm. achieve the same things and so if you, if you let go of your desires while you do it, like for, you know, to bring it back to my PhD as a, as a concrete example, um, when I'm feeling like it's, it's really effortful to do my PhD, I can recognize that it, it feels effortful because I'm wanting something out of it and I can just let go of all of the wants and then it's just doing and doing is really easy. Mm. Doing is what we, um, what we do every day and and we do some tasks really easily and we do some tasks uh, as if they're the hardest thing in the world and and the only difference there's there's no real physical difference right it's just body movements or in the case of phds none at all (laughs) so it should be relatively easy um but yeah the the difference is i guess our where, where our desires lie um well having desires at all and and not embracing that this is this is where we are and we can just be mm. it's um, it, with your page it is movement i think it's all movement it's like movement of your fingers on the keyboard it's moving ideas around your head you're yeah, planning through mental like, space going to uni and setting up the experiment yeah through yeah. mental space have you heard the theory that the brain exists only to support movement in a sense, the purpose mm. of life is movement that's based on the observation of a sea cucumber, which in its early phases of its life has a sort of primitive semblance of brain. Just a sort of cluster is that the one that only has a single... Oh, so it's got a cluster. Because there, there is a sea slug that only has a singular axon. Uh, if I remember from undergrad psych, that's how they initially measured the action potential. I don't know. This, this one is mobile until it finds a permanent home at which point it fixes itself and then metabolizes its brain wow so it eats its brain literally a useless organ yeah yeah it's it's brain is redundant the the neural cluster is redundant as soon as it doesn't have to i guess once it once it finds a place to settle it's like okay i don't need to worry anymore so it gets rid of the thing that motivates it to move which is worry yeah yeah that's really interesting. Um, We're here to move. It makes a lot of sense in in the in the in terms of uh, why humans can never be content as well. Why our, 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 we have this like hedonic adaptation? I heard it 
output um, where no matter what we get that we think we might want, uh, we'll very rapidly adapt back to equilibrium of being content because if we ever were truly happy with everything that we had, we would just stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'd just like fix ourselves to our location and become a sea slug. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this dissatisfaction that we constantly feel is not the enemy. It's actually what we need to, what we need to feel in order to do our things. Yeah. Evolution yeah. can be the enemy in a way, <laughs> or at least sense. the fact that we've evolved in a environment that's very different to the one that we find ourselves in now. Yeah. That we're not existing in a naturalistic setting anymore. So evolution, a lot of the sort of features that the process of random mutation, natural selection has left us with are redundant or counterproductive in this modern artificial world. Yeah. So recognizing how evolution has worked and working against that or working with it. Mm. Many people like to have an enemy. So yeah. if, if you need that to be motivated, then <laughs> fight against evolution. <laughs> fight yourself. <Yeah. laughs> no, don't fight yourself. That's, that's the opposite of what we've been talking about. Oh, and that's like with, I guess, like um, Aikido. <laughs> fight evolution with the toolkit of Aikido. What's Aikido? Aikido is like using someone's force against themselves. Uh, or in Zen, it's like using the mind to, to defeat the mind. So mm. Zen uses a lot of paradoxes to kind of um, undercut the, like, the mind's perception of its own usefulness and validity. Yeah. Um, like Zen koans and stuff like that are, are designed to kind of... Um, illuminate the kind of fickle futile nature of many of our mental activities yep. to bring us back into into presence yeah mm. that's really cool yeah it's like a i guess it is it's a it's a dance where um we can't always just be because if we did we wouldn't have movement uh, but we have to acknowledge i guess we have to be aware enough to witness when uh when there is the tug of of emotions to drive movement that we we take the movement and let go of the emotions mm. instead mm. of instead of continue pushing like and then we mm. and then we get tipped off balance because um our opponent recedes or <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I, I guess like if we we can stop moving, at which point we drop our bodies, our biological bodies die, mm. and then if you if you like the idea of soul, then our soul lives on, or perhaps if you take a Jungian pro approach, the the sort of our consciousness goes back, dissolves back into collective consciousness. Like a raindrop mm, in the it's ocean. It's a great point for uh, being cautious about where you let your consciousness go during your life. Because mm. if your consciousness drops back into the like, into the collective unconscious, then you really should be trying to foster some kind of 
beautiful contribution I would feel. Yeah, yeah. purity. So you're not polluting the ocean. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Another motivation, another way of looking at what spiritual practice should be our yeah. center. Yeah, or just presence if you don't like the word spiritual. Yeah. Mm. Expanded awareness. Yeah. Triviness. Triviness. <laughs> Being the wig trivial. out. <laughs> Embrace the wig. Yeah, maybe that's what the podcast should be called. Embrace the wig. <laughs> wig and is it is it a podcast on cross dressing or, <laughs> or spirituality? Uh, that would be great. A yeah, bald man. Be a great synthesis. <laughs> oh, there'd be a lot of disappointed listeners who come here for something and get taught things that they didn't want to think about yeah what what is this i need more money i want a promotion in the car how do paradoxes help me get my new maserati yeah exactly yeah how can paradox get me maserati (laughs) (laughs) it's paradox to get maserati well they will as soon as you let go of the maserati yeah that's it Oh, you know what's another really wiggy paradox is um, spending your working days thinking about mind wandering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we dive into that? Where Where are you up to? Um, working on. Yeah, it's it's been a so I'm a year and a half into my PhD now. Mm. Um, I've finally created some tangible experiments after a long period of isolated um just mind farts and just like full wig outs <laughs> just trying to catch myself mind wondering so that i could observe this ethereal phenomenon that i was trying to investigate and, mm. and understand it and spending all day thinking about what mind wondering is and by that nature not truly mind wondering um yeah, so I guess like a, an interesting place to start is is um, is what is mind wandering because it's something that we all commonly talk about and just like you know it's a colloquialism. Mm. We'll we'll use it to express the idea that we lost our, our attention lapsed or mm. or we use it to um, excuse ourselves and ask for someone to re-explain or we'll say that we were. Um, went to a park, sat down and, and daydreamed or which is mm. a synonym for mind wandering often. Um, and so even these two experiences seem vastly different when, when we let our uh, minds go and, and let ourselves daydream or imagine versus our attention lapsing. Um, so in the research, uh, because science requires operational definitions to to work uh for the last 15 years they've characterized mind wandering as off task thought or task unrelated thought mm-hmm. and so it becomes very easy, easily measurable because you can get people to do any task which you would classify as their primary task and then intermittently interrupt them and ask them if they were thinking about anything other than the task. And then people can say, oh yeah, I was thinking about this or I was thinking about that. And, and then they say, okay, you were mind wandering. And um, 
it's a very simple definition, but the problem then is that uh, you kind of are, are very reliant on on what like having this task, and there's many types of thoughts that we can have. Um, we could be sitting in a lecture, and uh, and the lecturer is talking, and we're trying our hardest to learn, and halfway through the lecture, we realize that for the last five minutes we haven't been paying attention, and so. Um, that's one type of mind wandering, or we could be listening to the same lecture and suddenly we realize that we've heard this before. And so we start thinking about something else. Uh, we start planning our weekend, um, or we start thinking about whatever assignment we have coming up. And so they're both off task thought, but they're phenomenologically seemingly different, right? Mm -hmm. Um, at least one's engaged with intention and one's engaged unintentionally. Um, and then you also have the example of the park where maybe you don't have anything that you immediately want to think about, but you, you kind of let go of your thoughts and your mind just starts thinking kind of wildly and freely between thoughts. Um, and so that seems to be another type of mind wandering. Uh, and so quickly when you, when you start trying to measure mind wandering you, you you seem to have these different types of thoughts that don't ha don't have an obvious um sign or indication of their differences um mm, there's a lot of subtlety between these different like flavors of mental phenomena yeah yeah mm. um hard to come up with a operation hard to operationally define yeah. And so the problem then if, is if we're not uh, accurately classifying each of these different thoughts, then mm. um, each of these thoughts would obviously serve different functions. Um, some, some of those thoughts might be better for creative thought. Others mm. of those thoughts might just be good for uh, allowing your neurons to rest. Maybe you've been firing for too long mm. and you've got cognitive fatigue. Wakeful um, consolidation. That's why I did my honors in with your supervisor. Oh, wow. True. Mm. Super relevant. I don't mm. know how we haven't touched on that mm. before. <laughs> Wakeful consolidation. So, um, like consolidating memories and, and extracting learnings from them lessons. From a basic uh, visual learning task. Yeah. So I had participants train uh, just a basic, like uh, trying to discern or discriminate coherent motion in... Um, a random dot stimuli, so lots of dots moving around randomly, and then a percentage of dots would be moving coherently, either left or right. Participants would just respond with the left or right arrow, arrow buttons on a keyboard. Yeah. And so they would train on this for, in one condition, either two hours continuously, or in the other condition, <laughs> yeah, with breaks. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Or in another condition, they would train for an hour, go away for an hour, and come back. Yep. Yeah, and then they come back the next. No, sorry. Yeah, forget that. Yeah, so those are the two conditions. Yeah, and the ones that had, and then measure the difference between accuracy in the first hour versus the second hour when they had a break or didn't have a break. Yeah. So the the participants who had a break did significantly better. So we inferred from that that there's some. Wakeful consolidation. Wakeful consolidation phenomena that's happening that allows them to better discriminate 
coherent motion from random dots stimuli. <laughs> and whether or not we can generalize this to higher level forms of memory, like if you're studying, like to have regular breaks to allow that yep. information juice to sink in, uh, to soak in. I, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's hard to say. We, it seems like the, you know, a lot of this stuff might be very specific to certain levels, even within the visual cortex. It might just be low level visual learning. Whereas if you're learning, a, if you're training to tell the difference, just name different objects shown up on a screen, just like object recognition, that might be a completely different mechanism. We don't know. Yeah. But it, it it's makes quite intuitive though, sense yeah. that like pacing, pacing, like pacing, giving ourselves right. breaks or yep. rest is important for learning and growth. And oh, I think the condition where they train for two hours actually did worse in the second hour. Not yeah, only no doubt, they were yeah, exhausted. For sure. The analogy that Joel Pearson, my supervisor, came up with was a super a, a skier skiing when they're tired and they learn sloppy form. Yeah. So when you're not paying attention properly, you're learning. Like we were always learning. Life is practice. We're constantly both practicing and performing at the same time. Mm. Um, so if we're tired and doing stuff, we're learning sloppy form yep. be it in some sport or studying or whatever. Yeah. It's very interesting though because, you know, Personally, I don't really spend much time of my day intentionally consolidating things that I've just spent time doing. So mm. you you could um, reason that it would be a, a function of mind wandering. It would be the, the unintentional process that's going on that, that might start to, um, yeah, just bring that, up. That could be the function of mind wandering. It could serve the function of like, wakefully of wakeful consolidation yeah well yes i think it's dangerous saying the function of mind wandering yeah Yeah. a function because the the depending on what type of thought there are there seems to be so many different functions um yeah the the interesting you know like the, the the most obvious um, it's really not obvious, but immediate function that people would, would jump to would be creativity. You would expect that people who are more imaginative in their thoughts on a daily basis might be more creative. Um, it seems to be that creative individuals uh, experience more divergent thought on a regular basis and might inspire some, a lot of their work. Um, but it's unclear whether that divergent thinking is something that um, you know, happens throughout their day while they're trying to focus on something else or whether that is something that they kind of like a, a state of mind that they can draw upon intentionally in order to um, like try and think of, of something creative or, um, or yeah, whether it's, it's that they, they just have a better ability to... Um, let go of their thoughts so yeah there's a, there's a lot of aspects of it um where i've taken mind wandering so far has been that i was i was unhappy with the task unrelated thought definition because it wasn't very clear as to what type of thought it was measuring uh 
and I, I found that there was a theory that mind wandering uh, is those thoughts which move freely um, mm. or those thoughts which move uh, like unguided is a, is a better way to put it. When thoughts move between thoughts from, from whatever thought to whatever thought without any seeming direction or purpose, um, these theorists would argue that that constitutes mind wandering. Um, so I got really interested by that notion because then it kind of paints a very um, clear space of thought where thought can vary along two axes, along how deliberately constrained it is. Um, so we can obviously constrain our thoughts in a, in a deliberate manner. When we have goal-directed thought, we, we constrain the area within which our thoughts can move so that, mm. so that we're problem-solving. Yeah, um, I like that phrasing. Yeah, we constrain the range in which our thoughts yeah. can move. Mm. Yeah, so it's like an, an attentional component of, of where our thoughts can wander. Mm-hmm. Um, and along the other axis is automatic constraints. Um, and so these are more emotions, salience, mental habits. Um, these are things that, that oftentimes when we're uh, sorry, when, when our thoughts become very stuck on one concept, like content. Un- unconscious constraints, like the setting yeah. that we're in, stress, noise, or yeah. like background noise, that kind of thing. Yeah, and so, so that's useful because it enables you to, to distinguish rumination from mind-wandering. Mm. Rumination is mind-wandering, mm. which is very automatically constrained, uh, and so it's not freely moving at all. Um, uh, and so... Yeah, I became interested in this this idea of freely moving thoughts and I'm trying to develop a way of measuring it uh, outside of just asking participants how freely moving their thoughts felt. Because uh, that's one of the biggest limitations in mind-wandering research is that the, the best we can do at the moment uh, is ask participants whether their minds were wandering or not. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have... There's no other outward signs... Mm-hmm. And we do have neuroscience methods, neuroimaging, fMRI, and EEG. Uh, expensive. Yeah, they're expensive, but they're also they're meaningless unless we consolidate them with participant reports. So mm-hmm. they are also indirectly based upon participant reports of mind wandering. And so um, I'm try I'm I'm quite um, bent on on working out a way to overcome this limitation because. People uh, typically don't have the metacognition to say what their thoughts were doing mm-hmm. from moment to moment, particularly if they were really mind wandering. Mm-hmm. Um, metacognition or insight into that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if if you yeah. if you ask it's someone like to, to watch whether right? they're yeah, yeah exactly you're lost in your thought, you're not. Yeah. You're not kind of like noticing your thoughts you're not aware of that yeah it's, it's like the distinction between being lost in your thoughts versus mindfully noticing the like stream of thoughts yeah across your mind's eye yeah it's so a that's a really interesting point. distinction right because because mm-hmm. in both cases they could be freely moving but in one case it's it's lacking in metacognition insight so, yeah that's yeah. a key variable it's like an, another access on like a circumplex on a spectrum yeah, yeah. 
And it's it's a curious question. Curious. Curious. <laughs> it's very curious <laughs> that um, uh, whether having awareness of the the flow of thoughts can um, like changes it in any way as well. Whether it is less freely moving because there is a part of our mind is engaged in the art of mm, keeping track. Ah, there'd have to be an interaction there. Yeah. There would be an interaction. I would predict there'd be an interaction. Yeah. But yeah, so um, in in service of answering these questions, I've tried to come up with a, a more objective way of measuring mind, of, of how, sorry, measuring how freely moving people's thoughts are. And uh, so still relying on self-report, I'm just trying to ask participants to recall their topics of thought over the past 20 seconds while they're doing a task and trying to keep it simple so that they're, they're not trying to recall like really in-depth descriptions of thoughts, just, you know, one or two word overall themes. Um, mm. I thought about university and then I thought about mm. my friend and then I thought about our plans and so on. Um, like a naming practice, like just naming your experience or thinking about work, thinking about this or that. That's often how like a mindfulness of thoughts yeah. um, exercise is yeah, described. Yeah. yeah. And so, but without the, the actual, I'm not trying to train them in mindfulness. I'm just trying to use it as a, me- a measure of uh, how fairly moving their thoughts are. So it's and more of a... the instruction that you give, just name and yeah, yeah. L- very briefly describe, state the thought that you're having in. Yeah. At, a, at like set intervals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's, it's, a, it's an attempt to capture the stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way, if, if, we, if that's something that we can capture, uh, potentially then we can conduct what's called semantic network analysis on the, these contents. And so semantic network analysis is a linguistic tool where um, researchers have essentially tried to generate really large and in-depth association networks uh, between cement, the semantic meanings of words that might reflect how our mind also generates association networks um and obviously there'd be differences in between how everyone's uh, between everyone's associations in their minds um but as a as a useful uh tool of, of average associations associative strength i guess uh, so what we would calculate is the semantic distance between thoughts mm, i love that semantic distance yeah, <laughs> yeah how related are these two thoughts objectively yep Mm. Yeah, and so then, if if someone's thoughts are moving between uh, contents that are really semantically separated, separated, mm-hmm. um, then we might be able to to use that as a measure of how freely moving their thoughts mm. are. And so An then, objective measure of mind wandering. Yeah, genius. Yeah, uh, so it's all very reliant upon participants' ability to recall their thoughts, mm-hmm. uh, but. It has a lot of potential future usefulness in if if this is something that participants can do, then we can start to um, yeah tease apart whether their thoughts are more freely moving or less freely moving based on certain manipulations, such as whether they're metacognitively aware beforehand. You know that would just be another question. Um, 
or not even that actually there are ways we can get out metacognition we can um get someone to do a task and then we can ask them to either self-report when they notice that they were mind wandering or mm-hmm. we can try and catch them in the act mm-hmm. um, by interrupting them and if we interrupt them and, and they're like oh yeah i was mind wandering then you know they, they weren't metacognitively aware versus if they reported themselves then they they were um, or at least How did they you catch them um, by inserting a thought probe at a random interval. So that's how we currently do mind wandering. So we have a task that is uh, really tedious and is designed to bore the participant. Um, <laughs> something they can do without really thinking. Cruel. Very cruel. cruel. Almost as cruel as two research. hours of random dot patterns. <laughs> yeah, no, that is it is the nature of psychology. We have to. We have to put people in really strenuous circumstances. Very <laughs> yeah. unnatural. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... What's the thought probe? The thought probe is when they're doing a task um, at a certain interval, they'll just uh, be interrupted and, and asked, what were you just thinking about? Oh, essentially, okay. yeah. Um, and so... I thought, yeah, you probe for thoughts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's... Yeah, probing them versus them reporting themselves. So then you get a measure of metacognition. Then you control for that yeah. in the semantic something analysis. Network analysis. Yeah, Sem- semantic network analysis. Yeah. Is that like a manoeuvre or something like that, or some oh, mm. or regression? Um, yeah, I think it would be a regression. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, because it would be a, a binary distinction between it'd be a yes or no i was either metacognitively aware or not and so um you could probably just do an anova or a t-test oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. um semantic distance with metacognition versus without mm-hmm. is the simplest way is there an would you have another condition so um so the main task what's the main task again uh, I haven't actually mentioned the main task. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, how are you operationalizing mind wandering? Um, so, in this case, I'm trying to investigate whether semantic distance could be an operation, an operationalization. Uh, so, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, that yeah. you get people to name their thoughts as they're coming up. So that's yeah. Okay. So that's how you're defining mind wandering. Um, so the de- yeah so the I guess the definition is that we will have thoughts yeah. but those thoughts which are freely moving would be classified as mind wandering okay so this is your dependent variable this is what you're measuring yeah okay and the task itself is um, just blocks of participants pressing left or right to corresponding arrows on the screen presented every one to three seconds. That's yes. the main. That that's the tedious task. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's something that it doesn't require any thought. It just requires a perceptual response. Yeah. Um, and that's not. Um, you know, it's probably one of the the simplest tasks that we would ever give a participant. Usually, it's it's something that bit that requires a bit more attention, like a um. A sustained. Uh, there's, a, there's a task called the Sustained Attention to Response Task, which is a really frustrating, cruel task <laughs> where we get participants 
we asked them to respond by pressing the space bar to a series of rapidly presented numbers. Uh, and you have to press the space bar to every number except for the number three. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's essentially a go, no go task where you're just sitting there and you're tapping space, 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 mm-hmm. space, space, space. And suddenly there's a, there's a three. And unless you're really paying attention, you will just press space and yeah. then you'll be like, ah, oh, yes. idiot. <laughs> and then, but you don't even have time to think that because there's already three numbers still in your face. It's just constant. It's just yeah. like, tsh, tsh, tsh. Really riveting so, um, stuff. Just like edge of your seat. Yeah. But it's really good because uh, it's, it's like, like ma- managing to inhibit that response requires uh, really strong focus. Mm-hmm. and so you can use their performance on their task as another measure of mind wandering um, where any thought other than focusing then then thinking about looking out for the number three will cause you to miss the number three because mm-hmm. you're in such a flow of pressing the space bar to every number mm-hmm. um, so it really requires you to sustain like a singular thought mm-hmm. to cruel cruel task it's so frustrating it's it's hilarious i'll leave um oftentimes i'll leave a little like feedback a box at the end for participants to just tell me how they went and they're all like i spent the whole time mind wondering about how difficult the task was and how annoyed i was and people get really hated yeah Hmm. You bastard researcher, why'd yeah. you do this to me? <laughs> yeah, I want to get back on my phone or social media. Or yeah. News. Yeah, where I'm, I'm allowed to press like to everything I see. I don't have to inhibit anything. Yeah. <laughs> Just as rapidly presented, but without the inhibition. Yeah, I wonder if there's like a, a cultural... Like, yeah, like so where, where did you think about starting... What, like what made you think about studying mind wandering because it's quite relevant now where we're in this kind of epidemic of distraction yeah where concentration is becoming a really rare um a rare quality and the culture is just working against that that skill yeah um it seems like this is a, a pertinent a timely topic definitely yeah head around like the, the nature of our mind yeah well it's an interesting like thought whether whether when we're scrolling social media whether our minds are even given the space to wander or whether they're um yeah very very much pushed into the back of our minds um if there is a function of mind wandering and social media is interrupting our capacity for it then it could be very detrimental but yeah it's definitely uh very pertinent to our current age I wish there was some mystical tale of how I discovered this beautiful <laughs> paradoxical topic, but um, it was just as as often happens, fell into my lap. Uh, I was just, mm. at, yeah, I was I was doing a PhD with um, Professor Joel Pearson at UNSW, who is a mental imagery or um, visual imagery researcher uh and the reason i started studying with him is because i was interested in in researching consciousness um which is not a surprisingly a uncommon topic to be researching in in psychology no one's really like uh trying to understand 
what consciousness is per mm. se. They're, they're more... It's too fluffy. Yeah. They're more interested in, in what cognitive, cognitive abilities we have. And I mm. find that a bit computational and not, I guess... Um, yeah, it's not fluffy enough for me. <laughs> I love the I love the humanities in that way, and I want to bring that to psych. But um, yeah, so uh, I started studying with Joel because he was a man looking at our phenomenal experience of conjuring images in our mind. And uh, when I started getting into that scientific literature, I found it really a, a bit dull. Mm-hmm. It was very much uh, just visual perception type science. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, when trying to work out what to do with my PhD, I just so stumbled upon a paper on mind wandering and I was like, what? No way. This is amazing. This is something that people research. This, this like unpredictable nature of our thoughts, the monkey mind in Zen mm-hmm. Buddhism. Uh, so that was what like intrigued me about it initially. And that's what also, uh, disenfranchised me with the the task unrelated thought definition of mind wandering because it doesn't capture the, the monkey mind that i find so baffling about the mind it's like well of course i can have task unrelated thoughts that's not even a, an interesting question to me the, the interesting question is why did my thoughts why do i have to keep my thoughts on topic <laughs> how come with my arm i can lift my arm up to the right and at no point is it just going to do the, the worm or the Mexican yeah. wave. But when I try and hold my mind steady, uh, it probably lasts three seconds before it just starts doing weird and wonderful mm. things. And I lose track of it. Um, yeah. So Well, the body does kind of once you start getting into some hardcore yoga poses. Right. I haven't, I haven't like delved that deeply. And like, get... Like, yeah, I you're right. The unconsciousness takes over, and it and it does. It gets very uh, yeah. like it tries to snap back and be like, no, I don't want to be in this. And but I'm looking around the room at what's possible with the yep. human body, and yep. like, apparently, I can do that. Like I have the ability to do it, and yet there's unconscious patterns that are preventing me. There's some barrier, some block from doing that. Mm. My mind, yeah, wonders or stays on the tracks. Yeah, have been laid out for it. Yeah, um, yoga seems to be the best practice for addressing mind wandering that I've heard of. Mm. <laughs> and like with thoughts, maybe like I wonder what the analogy or analog we're thinking is. We can. Have you heard the the metaphor that the mind is kind of like a chariot that's where, where the horses are bolted. We can't stop the horses, but we can sort of steer them somewhat. Mm. So we can. Sorry. So the the mind is the chariot, and the horse is well, the, the, the horse. I guess the mind is like a horse that's bolted. So right. Simplify it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we can attach a chariot to it. Or we're riding the horse. Yeah. So we can't stop the horse once it's bolted, but we can steer it. We can direct it a little bit. Yeah. We can maybe direct it up a hill or something like that. Mm. which might be getting up in the middle of the night if we're ruminating and applying a little bit more effort to the mental process by trying to put it onto paper, by writing, journaling, if we're just sort of like lost the cord in looping thoughts. Yeah. Put it down. It's kind of like running a bolting horse uphill. But it definitely fights back, though, is the interesting thing. The mind fights back. Yeah. 
uh, it doesn't, it won't submit to your, your efforts. Like, um, I mean, I've had the experience of trying to jot my ruminations on paper and having to fight a few, a few issues. One is, um, the mind moving too quickly for the pen. Mm. I get very ahead of myself and, um, kind of lose track of what I was writing because my mm. mind's gone. Um, so there's getting ahead of myself, but then there's also just wandering off into a different topic entirely which happens as well. Um, so, yeah, it's... Even applying effort, like journaling, uh, it still can't seem to to fully settle the horse into a, mm. into a steady direction. It's like putting the reins on it and it's, and it's still yeah, fighting to go it, in different directions. Sometimes it does help me work out some kind of whatever it is that my unconscious mind is trying to project up into consciousness. Yeah. Sometimes journaling can help along that process and I can get back to sleep yeah. if my thoughts are keeping me awake. But then other times I, I can reinforce the, the, the thinking yeah. by giving it my attention. Yeah. And no, for sure. Like, um, definitely not trying to undermine journaling as a it's a incredibly beneficial practice, mm. um, especially for bringing rationality to a, a very emotive thought pattern. But um, no, just the interesting thing for me is is the um, the fact that our mind is a horse that's out of our control, um, and that the best that we can seem to do is try and guide it. Steer it a little bit. Steer it a little bit while it seems to have its own direction. It's almost mm. like it feels uh, sensory, the thought patterns. It's um, like, you know, when, I look, when I'm looking around, I can close my eyes so I can kind of control what I'm seeing, but I'm still seeing blackness. I can't ever switch off the vision. Mm. And the mind is very similar like that. Um, mm. Like I can't choose what I'm thinking in the same way. I can't choose what I'm, what is going to pop off in my vision when I look in any given direction. And I mean, I guess hearing is an even better analogy because I can't, like with hearing, you can't like turn your ears to pick up different sounds. Like it's just whatever sounds are surrounding you, you will hear. Mm. Um, thoughts seem very similar to that. Uh, your thoughts... You, you just have to experience your thoughts. Mm. And then we have all these tools for um, trying to deal with them and trying to, to calm them down or um, to process whatever they, they, it is they're trying to tell us. But um, it's, it's interesting how once, they, once we maybe have addressed uh, the, the problem that is at hand, then they just move on to something else. Mm. And it just continues this neurotic madness, which is thinking... <laughs> Wow, you sure have taken on an ordeal trying to <laughs> capture this, this yeah. nebula. This, yeah, yeah, it's very fluffy. Thanks for validating my experience, <laughs> man. That helps a lot. Yeah, it is. It's nuts. It's very it's the most to try and slippery. To, to talk very slippery, very concept, hard to yeah. talk about. Yeah, hard to wrap my head around. Yeah, we we come up in the literature with many a term for describing the different dimensions or aspects of mm. mind wandering and they seem to be so useful and descriptive until um until they clash with a different dimension and then it's like well mm. how does this work how does, this doesn't make sense now how can you have freely moving intentional thoughts like <laughs> yeah um yeah it's 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 
It's very challenging. Uh, it also very. Oh. oh no! I was just gonna. I was gonna say yeah. That, that it's a, it's enjoyably challenging though because I think it will will come to clarity eventually. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Someone someone's gonna start toying with the ideas to start getting any ground, and that's what the research is doing. They're just like grabbing at whatever whatever thread they can measure to see what happens in hopes that it starts to paint a picture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's hard to get my head around and yet it's, it's very seductive to engage with this kind of content because it's so relevant. As, as we're talking about it, I see it happening in my own mind. Yeah. I the, the last part of this conversation, I'm trying to pay attention to it, and yet I'm noticing my mind wander, and I'm conscious of how the the tighter I get as well. Like the more my mind's wandering as well. Yeah. And, yeah. But it but it's like a fascinating it's fascinating concept. So I'm like. I'm drawn into it and I'm seduced into trying to understand it. <laughs> it's so weird. Like, it's oh, the weirdest really wanna... concept, man. Yeah. It's I so fun to play with. Happening. Yeah, I want to yeah. understand my mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that's, it's, I guess it's part of, um, part of that humanity's like subjectivity realm where it's something that like we all feel, um, but it's just very hard to grasp, at, like love. How do you mm. operationalize love? It's like one of those questions. Mm. My wondering is, is just one of those phenomenological experiences. Um, and, and it's so interesting, like, like on that point, how like, as we're, as we're mind wandering, it's like, like we're, as, as we're having this conversation, sorry, um, you'll notice that your thoughts mind wander because I mean, it's, it, it's like, it's like you have the desire to engage with what they're saying, but in order to engage with what they're saying, you have to think as well mm. and you have to react to what they're saying. And so in, in a lot of ways, um, you're, you're thinking about what you could potentially respond with by letting your mind go a bit and then bringing it back to listen and then mm-hmm. letting it go a bit and then bringing it back to listen. Mm. And then, but also sometimes your, your thoughts will just of their own accord grab at something completely irrelevant to what's going on right now. Mm. And if you're mindful enough, you can uh, quickly witness, recognize that and, and bring yourself back to presence. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, this, there's this interesting process there mm. uh, that, that is like, it, it feels like thoughts are simultaneously intentional and unintentional uh, in that mm. we want to be, thinking about certain things, but we don't get to choose exactly what the thoughts that arise are. Uh, and in order to have thoughts, we need to want to have thoughts and also let go of them so that they can occur. It's like, it's again, it's another paradox. It's it's the whole effort through ease. Yeah, balancing effort. Balance, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting what, what mechanism is, is underlying all of that. Um, mm. Is there a singular mechanism that, that is responsible for the, the movement of our thoughts? Or is it just... Um, yeah. There must be. 
has to be an explanation. Or is it just random? I feel like set and setting uh, would be would be important as well. Like our emotional state, our environment, mm-hmm. these things would have to like our inner and outer environments would affect the 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 quality and content of mind wandering. Yep. Sort of a term borrowed terms borrowed from the realms of psychedelics. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's a um a distinction between um the I guess things that things that would influence the nature of mind wandering, like you say the content and its quality versus the actual mechanism driving it like um yeah the mechanism i mean the mechanisms like evolution assuming wouldn't it would the evolution would have produced a mechanism right also like the, the mechanism would be presumably have being arrived at through the process of evolution to serve yeah. some function. Well, I guess to, to be clear about mm. but what I mean by mechanism, um, is there some process that the brain has for moving through possible thoughts in order to... Um, you know, serve whatever function like, like for consolidation or Mm. for exploration or something else. Like, is it, is it an aspect of our neurology that, um, our mind, uh, has to generate a flow of thoughts Mm. or something? If we, if we circle back to movement and how the brain kind of helps us guide, the, the brain serves as this guide through the world. Um, and drawing on computing science terminology around decision-making, how once at certain levels of possible decisions on a decision-making tree, a complexity of possible outcomes becomes overwhelming and the only that's called the halting problem the only way we can overcome that or the you know the best way is just to make an arbitrary decision Mm. it could be the mind's way of overcoming the halting problem given the complexity of possible options in the world yeah like the unconscious mind is just throwing up like Oh, here are some possible options in this, like in the ocean of infinity. Yeah. It could just serve as a way to keep us moving. Yeah. To help prevent stagnation. Yeah. Mind wandering or the mechanism behind mind wandering could just be like a, a motor, like just the, the thing that keeps everything chugging along. But so then does that imply that the, the mechanism it's that yeah that that, that the mechanism kind of like selects almost re- like not not really randomly but pseudo randomly yeah pseudo randomly i guess like our unconscious mind's like a supercomputer it's processing so much stuff um but it can't 
process everything. So it's sort of, yeah, trying to synthesize everything that we've learned and um, make predictions about the best possible outcomes. Mm. What about even just cause and effect? Um, it, could, it could also just be that... Bayesian, sort of. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, that through the interplay of, of like us interacting with the world and, and all of our previous thoughts, um, that every thought is causally generated by the, the either sensory stimulation or thought that preceded it mm-hmm. um, over through associative networks. Um, yeah, yeah. But even though the brain is incredibly powerful, there's, there's an infinite number of potential causes so the brain will i mean still get overwhelmed and still has to overcome still has to deal with the halting problem right has to deal with got to keep moving in the face of overwhelming so there's so many things that could cause any particular thought so that it needs to pick one cause yeah 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 i'm with you we can't i mean in decision making you can either maximize by there's different like Actually, that's not really that that relevant. Uh, something else, but yeah, like if we try and find the perfect answer, we'll never make a decision. Mm. We'll just keep. If we try and research the perf- best car to buy, you know, we can research for the rest of our lives and accumulate information without ever making. It's gonna make a call at some yeah, stage. At some point, we need to find that balance. Yeah. 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 And let's um. Let's pick this up again another time. I'm just curious to see where you're at when you're further down this rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> what a fascinating sure. conversation. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to fade. I'm, I'm fading I hard. I yeah. to get up early and yeah. hit up this yoga class. But yeah, it's hard toying so with much. these ideas late at night. I know, yeah. Let's, let's, without coffee. <laughs> yeah. Or magic mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be yeah. great podcast episode. Yeah, we do that. Microdose and shrooms. Okay, yeah, let's keep that in mind. Microdose or macro, whatever. Yeah. I don't know how much sense I'll make on it. Much more than half a gram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to do this at varying levels. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, keen to explore that space. First of many conversations, I hope. <laughs> yeah, this has been great fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for providing the space. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real mental workout. Great to hang as well. Thanks for coming. Mate. Yeah, oh yeah. Beautiful. Cheers, this is Soren and Jez <laughs> signing out. Peace. <laughs>